You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And after the terribly windy day yesterday and the lightning and the rain the night before, it's now calm and uh, serene out there in morning land in Melbourne, which is uh, quite nice. It means I could ride my bike. And Yesterday uh, on the uh, tram, I uh, got uh, uh, the ring... A ring side seat to the uh, weather event, uh, a uh, lightning struck a tree that fell on the road, which was, you know, high excitement. We all, we had a uh, high excitement weather event yesterday. And of course, that uh, is a backdrop to uh, this endless discussion about COP26, which apparently some people are calling the blah, 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 blah set, uh, uh, fest, but there you go. Uh, on the front of the Age this morning, um, the slightly uh, uh, liberal tainted rag that uh, uh, is uh, most often read in Melbourne as the uh, purveyor of uh, factual uh, news. Uh, it says that uh, uh, Australia is going to join China and India to lobby against uh, or resist, they call it resist a global uh, coal phasing out. Uh, so they don't want a date set for the removal of uh, coal mining and uh, uh, opal cut coal mining and uh, other production elements of uh, coal mining. So there you go. So uh, Fat Fellow has gone off to... Um, but to blow the trumpet of uh, Australia at COP26, uh, uh, saying that, uh, you know, Australia is all ready for zero emissions, which I secretly wonder if he actually knows what that means uh, in 2050, because he knows that he won't be around when uh, that date comes. Uh, but anyway, uh, the program today, we're going to... Um, uh, we're going to look at uh, the eco-socialism uh, conference that the uh, Green Left Socialist Alliance put on last week. Well, we're not uh, going to be thorough with it, but we are going to play a piece from e- Ian Angus, who is a, a, a very esteemed eco-socialist. And uh, the uh, the theme, which is the reason why I wanted to play it, was because uh, he points out that uh, sending uh, the suits that have caused the trouble to solve the p- trouble and leave it in, leaving it in their hands is uh, 
a monstrous oversight on the part of the uh, general public of the uh, of the world, and uh, probably will end in tears. Uh, anyway, uh, he's a fascinating fellow. Uh, we're going to. Uh, contribute our part of the uh, anti-militarist week that uh, has been happening at 3CR um, at breakfast time at 8am. Of course, this is a UN week, you know, anti-militarism. The whole idea that uh, waging peace is a good thing needs to be uh, uh, propagandised, that people need to realise that peace is a good thing. And so we're lucky enough to be talking to Margaret Pistorius at 8. She is part of Wage Peace. Uh, fantastic name, fantastic organisation. Uh, we're going to uh, move on and hear from Kevin. And uh, and uh, the last part of the program, uh, this week there was the launch of Mur- uh, Murdoch, Australian Australians for a Royal Commission into Murdoch. It's hashtag Murdoch Royal Commission. And so we're going to have excerpts from that launch because you may not have been aware that it's been happening and uh, you may not have been at the launch. But it's interesting to think that uh, uh, the um, uh, there's a fight on. The culture war is, has, is not dead and uh, the uh, absolutely uh, threadbare... Um, uh, underwear of our democracy is coming to the fore and uh, the fight is on and uh, part of it is quite clearly uh, the um, starting of this thing called uh, Murdoch Royal Commission, hashtag uh, Murdoch Royal, Royal Commission, which apparently on the Thursday night when the launch was happening was trending on Twitter. But uh, there you go. Um, there is some news, though. There's some news before we start on the program. Uh, up to 700,000 workers in Victoria had their disaster payments cut on uh, Friday. You may be one of them. You may be entirely aware of this. Um, the disaster payments were cut by the Morrison government uh, as Victoria reaches 80% full vaccination despite reopening being incomplete and worker capacity remaining staggered. From today, that is Friday, the COVID-19 disaster payment will drop from $750 to $450 this week for those who have lost more than 20 hours of work, dropping to $320 the week after that before ceasing altogether. Uh, The um, figures say that 168,000 people or 4.6% are currently formally unemployed in Victoria and when those who've left labour force or working zero hours are included, this increases to 558,400 people, that's 16% of the labour force out of work the fudged figures. There you go. That's uh, what's been going on in terms of supporting the working class during COVID uh, at the same time as uh, big business is raking it in. Uh, As I said, the the, uh, PM is over in uh, taking another overseas junket, gone off to uh, COP26 in Glasgow. And uh, here he's saying... uh, uh, glamour words regarding uh, climate change, but in actual fact, uh, make uh, his true colours uh, resisting a global date for the phasing out of coal um, production. But uh, farmers uh, using here uh, um, at the uh, Liberal Party has been uh, 
shepherding the National Party in to uh, a fake uh, climate change uh, positive reaction, 2050, uh, but, uh, of course, what's really being at centre stage is are the National Party actually representatives of the farming community? Now, there's a group called um, uh, Farmers for Climate Action. Uh, they're a movement of more than 6,000 farmers and agricultural leaders who are working to ensure that farmers who are on the front line of climate change are part of its solution. And they put out a press release uh, pointing out that the gas industry must not come before agriculture. And they were saying that uh, the farming uh, community has been working very hard to rem- reduce methane levels, but it is actually the gas industry which is uh, making Australia fail in its attempts to reduce methane, which is a gas that is uh, part of the whole climate change uh, problem. Now, Farmers for Climate Action CEO Fiona Davis said Australia could support a 30% methane reduction commitment if it were willing to support methane emission reductions in the gas industry. Amongst all of this sort of the detail, one of the things is that Australia will not support the proposed 30% methane reaction pledge at the Glasgow Climate Summit. It makes you wonder why the man packed his bags and went there. Is it just a publicity stunt amongst all the other publicity stunts that the man has put on? Or is it so that he can be snubbed again by the French Prime Minister? Who knows? The other big news, of course, is the um, the proceedings against Julian Assange uh, in London. Um, the uh, let me see, let me find uh, an absolutely scathing report on um, the World Socialist Web, written by Thomas Scripps. He wrote it on the twenty seventh of October. Uh, The attempted US extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange resumed yesterday with the opening of a hearing into a US government appeal. It is a legal abomination in pursuit of a heinous crime. And uh, he says, uh, quite true, Assange did appear on camera some hours later visibly... Uh, visibly unwell, thin, downcast and struggling to stay awake or to sit up in his chair. He arrived in time to listen to the lawyer for the US government, James Lewis QC, pontificate at length on his suicide and whether the risk was really all that high. Assange left the video link room for some time, sitting out of shot when he returned. Uh, speaking outside the court, Assange's partner, Stella Morris, explained pointedly that the court proceedings would decide whether a journalist will be extradited to the country that conspired to assassinate him. Yes, that is all true. Um, there's a... In August 2010, with successive WikiLeaks revelations shaking world imperialism, an investigation, a transparent fraud, and now totally discredited and subjected to a devastating dissection by UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Niles Malissoir. 
began by Sweden into uh, Assange's alleged sexual assault of two women. This action gave grounds for his seizure by the uh, British police and was used to keep him arbitrarily attained in the Ecuadorial Embassy in London for close to seven years. And, of course, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, Anyway, that's what's going on for poor old Julian Assange. Uh, There was a vigil on Friday... uh, and um of course perfect timing uh with the uh since people have been allowed out uh and uh it, people shouldn't forget that this man is an incredibly brave person who uh basically has stood up against um the power elites that appear to think that uh they are above the law or you know they're the ones who are making the laws uh people shouldn't forget uh, okay, so uh, the other thing that uh, I should uh, bring to your attention is that the uh, Parks uh, Hotel in Carlton, uh, Lincoln Gardens, down beside Park Hotel, that's where uh, people will be meeting today at 2pm to continue the vigil uh, 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 raising awareness of the fact that there are Medivac refugees in that hotel who have been affected by COVID and there appears still to be no answer to the problems, the human rights abuses that are being affected against these people right in the middle of the city, right in front of our faces. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is back for 2021. This year's digital festival invites you to take a journey with a series of thought-provoking films, documentaries and shorts. EFA 21 invites you to explore the world and connect with environmental issues beyond the headlines. Take a journey into the deepest seas, up awe-inspiring mountains and into the lives of those fighting to save our planet. Running from October 14 to November 14, visit effa.org.au for more. The Environmental Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. As I said, I um, spent quite a time last weekend listening to tuning in to the Green Left Socialist Alliance uh, Eco Socialist Conference. Fantastic uh, affair, very broad uh, brush. And um, there's a, a couple of pieces that I'd like to play, but today I'm going to focus on Ian Angus. Ian Angus is uh, a Canadian eco socialist activist. Uh, he's the editor of Climate and Capitalism. He found, founded and edited the Socialist History Project and was an editor of Socialist Voice. He was a founding member and coordinating committee member of the Eco Socialist International Network. Who go figure? Big, big G's. He's also the author of uh, Red a Shade of Green, Intersections of Science and Socialism. Facing the, uh, he's also wrote Facing the Anthropocene, that is obviously human-made climate disaster, fossil, uh, uh, Fossils, Capitalism and the Crisis of the Earth System, uh, anyway, and other works. And uh, this is what he had to say. I just thought it was a, a very nice, in um, a nutshell, piece. Thank you for that kind introduction, um, and hello to everybody in, in Australia. I'm speaking to you uh, 
from Canada and from Eastern Ontario. This is where I am is unceded traditional Algonquin territory of the Anishinaabe people. And I'm speaking with great respect for the indigenous people who have walked this land for so long. Over a century ago, the great Irish revolutionary James Connolly wrote a poem that I think is very relevant to today's meeting, today's subject. The poem was called, Be Moderate. And the opening verse went, some men faint-hearted ever seek our program to retouch and will insist whene'er they speak that we demand too much. Tis passing strange, yet I declare such statements give me mirth, for our demands most moderate are. We only want the earth. That's what we want. We only want the earth. We want to wrest our planet from the hands of the vandals who are destroying it. We only want the earth. Nothing less will do. You know, today's student strikers and the Extinction Rebellion protests are big steps in the right direction. Those activists are building an independent radical counterforce in the streets and eco-socialists fully support them in that absolutely essential effort. Now it's very different, of course, with the liberal Greens whose entire focus is on lobbying our masters to solve the crisis for us, and who are afraid of alienating capitalist politicians and corporate executives. There's another verse in Connolly's poem that describes their approach. Be moderate, the timorous cry, who dread the tyrant's thunder. You ask too much, and people fly from you aghast in wonder. Typically, environmental liberals insist that the best way to stop climate change, if not the only way to stop it, is to put a price on carbon, usually by imposing some form of tax on fossil fuels. The theory says that emissions will decline if prices are nudged up. They rarely address the fact that although oil prices have risen radically in the past 50 years or so, Production and emissions have risen at the same time. Rather than switch to alternative sources of energy when oil got expensive, the oil industry went after unconventional oil, fracking and mining tar sands. Despite that, many sincere Greens believe we can fix the world just by nudging the market a little bit. Unfortunately for such wishful thinking, what humanity now faces is not a single solvable problem that can be dealt with by a minor tax change, but a convergence of ecological crises that actually threatens the survival of civilization. Now, climate change is of course the most extreme and immediate aspect of the emergency, but we also face superstorms, rising sea levels, massive wildfires, toxic air and smog, ocean acidification and dead zones, species extinction, soil erosion, freshwater depletion, ozone destruction, indestructible plastics and chemical pollution, deforestation, expanding deserts, 
antibiotic resistant bacteria and new diseases and plagues. And the list goes on and on. This is a planetary emergency. What we confront are not individual problems that modest reforms and policy shifts can fix, but a complex and interlocked set of disruptions of the natural processes that have made Earth habitable for thousands of years. Um, 12 years ago in 2009, a team of 28 internationally renowned scientists convened by the Stockholm Resilience Center identified nine planetary boundaries that define what they call a safe operating space for humanity. Crossing any one of those thresholds, they wrote, could have deleterious and even catastrophic consequences for human well-being. They updated their report in 2015, and it showed that seven of the nine pl critical planetary boundaries are close to, are already in the danger zone. Something has gone terribly wrong with the relationship between human society and the earth. Addressing the symptoms alone is dangerous. A fix for one problem may make other problems worse. Radical rem remedies are obviously required, but we won't find a cure unless we identify the underlying cause, the, system, the systemic disease that is attacking our life support systems. Many environmentalists identify the underlying problem simply as growth. And in fact, as many books and articles have shown, the drive to extract, produce, and grow ever more stuff is filling our rivers with poison and our air with pollution. Oceans are dying, species are disappearing at unprecedented rates, water is running short, and soil is eroding faster than it can be replaced. But the growth machine pushes on. Corporate executives, economists, bureaucrats, and politicians all agree that growth is good and non-growth is bad. Unending material expansion is a deliberate policy promoted by ideologues of every political stripe, from social democrats to conservatives. You know, when the G20 met in Toronto, near where I live, a few years ago, they unanimously agreed that their highest priority was, quote, to lay the foundation for a strong, sustainable, and balanced growth. The final declaration they issued was only a handful of pages long, but the word growth appeared 29 times. Uncontrolled growth is clearly a central issue, but that only raises a further question. Why does the growth continue? Why is it in the face of massive evidence that expanded production and resource extraction is killing us, do governments and corporations keep shoveling coal for the runaway growth train? In most environmental writing, one of two explanations is offered. Either it's human nature or it's a mistake. The human nature argument is central to mainstream economics. 
which assumes that human beings are all, always want more. So economic growth is just capitalism's wonderful way of meeting human desires. For our species, enough is never enough. That often leads its proponents to conclude that the only way to slow or reverse the pillaging of Mother Earth is to slow or stop population growth. More people equals more stuff, so fewer people would equal less stuff. That claim, unfortunately, is fatally undermined by the fact that the countries with the highest birth rates have the lowest standard of living. The people in those countries own the least stuff and produce the least pollution. There's a study done at Yale University a few years ago that concluded that if the poorest 3 billion people on the planet somehow disappeared tomorrow, there would be virtually no reduction in ongoing environmental destruction. The other comp common explanation for the constant promotion of growth is that we have been seduced by a false ideology. The drive for growth has been described as a fetish, an obsession, an addiction, even a spell in one book I read. Such accounts prevent the drive for growth as a choice that politicians and investors make under the influence of a rather bizarre obsession. But as the British Marxist Fazi Ibrahim says, this must be the first time in history that a necessity has been described as a fetish. You might as well describe fish as having a fetish for water, as capitalism having a fetish for growth. Growth is as essential to capitalism as water is to fish. And as a fish would die without water, so capitalism would drown without growth. Growth ideology doesn't cause perpetual accumulation. It justifies it. Uncontrolled growth is not the root of the global crisis. It's the inevitable result of the profit system, of capitalism's inherent drive to accumulate every ever more capital. As individuals, the people who run the giant polluting corporations undoubtedly want their children and grandchildren to live in a clean, environmentally sustainable world. But as major shareholders and executives and top managers, they act, to use a wonderful phrase that Marx came up with, they act as personifications of capital. Regardless of how they behave at home or with their children, at work they are capital in human form. And the imperatives of capital take precedence over all other needs and values. When it comes to a choice between protecting humanity's future and maximizing profit, they choose profit. And the reason they do that is very simple, although its implications are very complex and profound. Big banks and money funds and multimillionaires invest in order to make more money back. They really don't care if the company they invest in makes cars or clothes or candy bars, so long as they get a return on their investment, as long as they get more out than they put in. 
Corporations, you see, are giant social machines for turning capital into more capital. That's what shareholders want and expect. And that's what managers and executives must deliver. A person who's unwilling to put the needs of capital first is unlikely to become a major corporate executive. And if the screening process fails, or if a CEO has an inconvenient attack of conscience, he or she will not last long in that position. It has been called the ecological tyranny of the bottom line. When protecting humanity and the planet might reduce profits, corporations always put profits first. Capital has only one measure of success. How much more profit was made in this quarter than in the previous quarter? How much more today than yesterday? It really doesn't matter if the sales include products that spread disease, destroy forests, demolish ecosystems, and treat our water, air, and soil as sewers. If it contributes to the growth of capital, that's what counts. Each corporation seeks to ensure that its products produce an attractive profit on invested capital. A corporation with lower costs or more attractive products can drive its competitors out of business. There's a constant pressure to expand physically, financially, and geographically in order to increase capital and thus to increase profit. If nothing stops it, capital will try to expand forever and infinitely. But of course, the planet is not infinite. The atmosphere and the oceans and the forests are finite, limited resources, and capitalism is pressing against those limits. That is the defining feature of the capitalist system and the root cause of the global environmental crisis. Mass opposition and public pressure can slow down or hinder the drive for more, to expand more and faster, but it will always reassert itself in some form. It's like an autoimmune disease that attacks the body it dwells in. Capitalism is both part of the natural world and at war with it. It simultaneously depends upon and undermines our planet's life support systems. Capital's ecologically destructive impacts are driven not only by its need to grow, but by its need to grow faster. The circuit from investment to profit to reinvestment takes time to complete. And the longer it takes, the less total return the investors receive. Competition for investment produces constant pressure to speed up the cycle, to go from investment to production to sale ever more quickly. That's why in 1925, it took 16 weeks to raise a two and a half pound chicken. Well, today, chickens twice that big are raised in six weeks. Selective breeding, hormones, and chemical feed have enabled factory farms to produce not just more meat, but more meat faster. The suffering of the animals and the quality of the food are secondary concerns, if they're considered at all. Fertile land is destroyed, forests are clear cut, and fish populations collapse, all because of what the brilliant Marxist philosopher Istvan Mazarosh called 
the incurably short-term horizon of the capital system. There's an insuperable conflict between nature's time and capital's time, between the cyclical processes that keep the earth going that have developed over hundreds of millions of years and capital's need for rapid production, sale and profit. Since the middle of the 20th century, capitalism has caused unprecedented changes in the entire biosphere, in earth's lands, forests, water and air. In its everlasting and endless search for profits, capital is massively destroying and disrupting Earth's life support systems, the natural processes and cycles that make life itself possible. What Marx called metabolic rifts have become metabolic chasms in our time. That's why the environmental crisis can't, can't be just a talking point for socialists not something we write the odd article about and move on. It's a planetary emergency that we have to treat as a top priority. We have to initiate and join struggles for immediate environmental aims. We need to participate, not as sideline critics, but as activists, builders, and leaders. And at the same time, we need to find the best ways to patiently explain how those struggles relate to the larger fight to save the world from capitalist ecocide. In every country, we need governments that break with the existing order, that are answerable only to working people, farmers, the poor, indigenous communities and immigrants. In a word, governments that answer to the victims of ecocidal capitalism, not to its beneficiaries and representatives. Such a profound transformation will not just happen. In fact, it will not happen at all unless ecology has a central place in socialist theory, in the socialist program, and in the activity of the socialist movement. In short, in the 21st century, socialists and greens must be eco-socialists and humanity needs an eco-socialist revolution. As James Connolly wrote, our demands most moderate are, we only want the earth. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR, 8.5 AM, the voice of the community. All of the money that ever I had, I spent it in good company and of all the harm that e'er I done alas it was to none but me and So filled to me the parting glass 
be a great fan of God, but uh, cherish the ladies, uh, the parting glass. What a beautiful piece of music. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, I have on the line Margaret Paturis. G'day, Margaret. How are you? God, hi, Annie. Wasn't that a lovely piece of music? It is. Irish music, always good. Yeah, always good. And uh, before we have a chat, we're, uh, all it's all about uh, waging... Uh, wage peace and uh, the rising militarism uh, in the Australian landscape. But uh, I just thought I'd start with this uh, funny thing that happened. I, I do crosswords and because uh, of, you know, COVID does that to you, you do puzzles. And uh, uh, there was this crossword clue that said focus on social good. And, you know, the answer was radical. Which, nice. <laughs> which I thought was a real indicator of the... Uh, Issues around wage for pe- wage peace. Uh, you wouldn't have thought that waging peace would be a radical concept, but it is, isn't it? It is. With where we are sort of moving back into a period of um, sort of un, un, unnoticed or sort of invisible militarism, where it's sort of a value that's not being addressed explicitly by many sections of the society, unfortunately. But um, we do have a crew 
that is out there and uh, at the gates of weapons corporations or in their offices or in their actually a doorstop. We were in their doorstop uh, the last couple of weeks. So there is a crew out there who's um, trying to address the great um, silence that we're getting around militarism. Yeah, so uh, you you are actually targeting the uh, manufacturers uh, who are being uh, supported by government to uh, you know with this idea that Australia is going to manufacturing is going to be rescued by the armaments trade. Yes, uh, there, there's some reasons why they seem to have slipped into that. Um, Mode. One is that the you know the corporations are some of the biggest corporations in the world, and they have been pretty systematically doing over most uh, colonising governments like ours or Indonesia or Korea, um, anywhere where the US have um, a, a long-standing financial interest, and so their corporations have come in and they're pretty much in the ministers' offices. Uh, telling the governments what to do. You know, our government, you can sort of see they don't really have many ideas for themselves. They're pretty much on an operational trajectory that's set up by the corporations. Um, and so the, the, weapons, the weapons companies are right in there. You know, like we had a, a defence minister who had worked for Raytheon and been on the board at Raytheon um, and then had sort of... Uh, set herself up for a trajectory to become defence minister, um, but they're they're in uh, you know they're in silent positions as well. They like the fossil fuel industry. They move in and out of government into the corporations, into the military themselves. So some of them are military people, and then they move around, and then that's the way they're able to sort of enact the um, the US propaganda agenda and the US agenda itself, the the Pentagon's agenda of um, financial control across yeah. the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- that revolving door between uh, the uh, politicians and uh, 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 and it's it's both both sides of politics, in fact. Yes, there's there's a, certainly a bipartisan perspective, and I think that's why we're going after the corporations themselves because the ALP are totally um, inside it, uh, inside the discourse. Um, you know, unable to take a stand on anything, also poll-driven and focus group-driven. And what we know, you know, we hear this from veterans, is that, um, you know, high-level, high who've been high-level serving veterans, that really they're poll-driven. You know, David McBride has told us the wars, are, they make decisions about wars because um, it's good electioneering, it resonates with that particular group of men who are swinging voters and don't really have an ethical base to any of their decision-making. And so they, um, they, they'll go with the violent uh, conflict, you know, the who's going to win at violence uh, discourse, the toxic masculinity discourse. And so if they can rattle that discourse, then there's a certain... They, 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 they get a certain number of voters. So the, so the ALP are totally in it. They won't take a stand against it. Doesn't matter what their um, rank and file, you know. Basically, they've denuded or you know um, silenced their rank and file. And so, even if you talk to the rank and file, they go, "Oh, yes, but yes, but." But actually, on the ground, they are silenced and they won't speak out against it because it's bad for election. It's fascinating to me. Uh, I listened to a great speech uh, by uh, Jacob Gritch uh, a couple of uh, May days. Uh, uh, ago where he stood up there talking about the concept of uh, wage peace 
and how we live in a world where it's the most frightful thing for there to be an outbreak of peace because then the stock exchange goes down. It, it's yes. Yeah. Yes, well, I think one of the things I was just, um, just thinking before the interview is, is that people really need to know that, you know, the, of the 20 largest Australian corporate companies, um, they're all owned, more than 50% owned by the US. Um, there's maybe five that are more than 25% owned. Um, the other five are sort of 25% owned. So you, you've got to think, actually, our financial system is owned by the US corporations themselves. They all invest in each other. And what the US government is doing is protecting those investments. That's its, that's its main thing. They're so sort of... Um, they're wrapped up in protecting their own financial investments. And so, you know, it's something like BHP only has 10% Australian investment. I know this is a very capitalist way of thinking about it, but we've got to look at what these actual drivers are. And the actual drivers are um, are the corporations are are looking to transfer wealth from the the commonwealth into their own, uh, you know, corporate and... Uh, financial shareholders, sort of, um, that's where the, the wealth is moving. And so the best way they do that is to sort of move into government and get government to facilitate that. And the arms trade is the quickest, most easy way of doing that because they're all government contracts. No one else really does con- government contracts. So if you can get in, get um, a piece of that pie, um, it's a very long-standing pie. It's like buying a Hyundai and then having it service that Hyundai for, for 10 years. Well, what they do is they, they buy the ships and then have them serviced by the corporations for 30, 40 years. Um, so they have the maintenance contracts that are ongoing. They're often overblown. They're corrupt. And what we know is that the corporations have been moving from government to government. We know this from Andrew Feinstein, the um, South African MP who left um because of corruption um, and has taken a stand against the shadow world of the arms trade since then. And what he's seen is that the, um, each, of the, each government becomes more and more corrupt as they take on these um, arms uh, contracts. And you see this in Indonesia. You know, Indonesia is a special focus of ours. We have a special solidarity partnership with West Papua, um, and we see those West Papuans fight, you know, fighting non-violently. There's a huge mm. non-violence movement there in West Papua. And we see how their government is now buying attack helicopters from Boeing. Um, it's getting equipment from Australia. It's buying equipment from across the world. You know, um, Indonesia is not a rich country, but it's using more and more of its yearly spend on weapons. And a proportion of those sit in sheds and on paddocks. You know, we we see that in Australia. But a proportion at the moment, a large proportion in Indonesia, is being used in West Papua to strafe villages, um, you know, from helicopters to shift in large battalions of military in their armoured vehicles. Armoured vehicles are a huge business big steel uh, armoured vehicles that are weaponised, um, a huge business. Also for Australia, you know, we have Talis and Bendigo uh, is, a, is a factory in Bendigo making armoured vehicles and they're the, one, they're the one thing that we know has been sold to Indonesia and that re- just recently the um, Defence Minister gave 15 of these armoured vehicles to Indonesia to use in West Papua. Um, we know that they're using in the West Papua because we have photos of them in West Papua.
Oh, gosh, it's so disgraceful, isn't it? Australia puts on its best frock for, and stands up and says, oh, we're a fair nation. And uh, not only that, he, uh, the Prime Minister had the audacity to talk about uh, our Pacific family uh, when he announces AUKUS. Yes, I mean, these are all sort of tropes, really. You know, he, they, they, they all, they're all, you know, steeped in... Um, marketing, propaganda, that's their thing. You know, they tell lies, basically. They're yeah. lie tellers. And um, so it really I, it really doesn't matter what they say. I mean, they're speaking to a very narrow group of people in every election who they're hoping to win over, you know, who are not already locked on. And so they're speaking really to the those people in the society who, who, who are wavering ethically, um, who will take whatever money is given, who will take whatever lies, who will take whatever promises they can make. So they'll, they'll say whatever and do whatever. I think the election cycle is incredibly corrupting. And as we move into a federal election cycle, what we notice in the movement is everybody takes their foot off the accelerator and turns left, you know, away, you know, off the trajectory that we're on instead of at moments when we need, as a movement, to put our foot on the accelerator and go straight ahead for what we're going for, what we find is the movement gets confused and everybody pulls their foot off the accelerator, turns left and uh, moves into election land, which is just a big waste of time. Unless you're on, you know, unless you're on the hustings for the Greens, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, trying yeah. To, to get that up a bit. But if you're doing anything else or entering most of those discourses, they're a big waste of time. Yeah, that's interesting to me because... Uh, uh, you know when people get uh, uh, have you know the scales taken from their eyes and they realise that uh, there's so many things that are basically uh, um, mm. lies, uh, they become very distressed. They can become very emotionally distressed, and COVID has, in a sense, uh, heightened that. But uh, that advice that you just gave is really interesting because it's about people realising don't get involved in the lies. Uh, you know that you know it, it. Just accept. Uh, it talks like a duck. It walks like a duck. It is a duck, and just keep focusing on the game. That's right. I mean, we. I, I think a lot of us. We. I, I'm. I mean, you could hear some psychological themes here, but I think we get caught up in it because we looked at you know sort of daddy and mummy government to sort of fix things and they just never do you know we keep going there but they don't because they're bought out by the corporations and the the big corporations Talis, boeing albert um Rhein Metall, these are all um actives actively selling and the australian company is electro optic systems actively selling into indonesia if not from australia Talis is is coming direct from australia but they are all companies that have some subsidiary somewhere in the country. You know, they are decentralised um, to get around regulations um, and to, you know, take what they can from regulations. They are selling into Indonesia and those that equipment is being used to militarise West Papua. And what we know is that that driving militarism is driving extraction. It's driving deforestation and dispossession. We have a huge internal uh, refugee problem. Uh, problem, you know, refugee. This real people with real. It's not just a problem. It's real people suffering in West Papua, and um, that's a dispossession and deforestation. You know, driving militarism is a climate issue because it's driving deforestation. It's driving extraction. It's driving, um, you know, palm oil. 
Uh, you know, it's just driving the worst parts uh, of capitalism. It's, it's funny you should say that. I keep uh, they keep having these ads for Nutella, and every time I see Nutella, I think palm oil, monoculture, ecological disaster. Yes. So ecological disasters is the heart of militarism, and and what we keep, what we see emerging from the climate movement now is that um, the climate we or can hear it at the school strike. The climate. Um, the climate disaster is being driven by colonisation. You know, obvious. It's sort of obvious, but those of us, um, you know, and I am a white person on Yagara country, a First Nations country here in Brisbane, but I, we know, we, we, we forget or we ignored that for so many years, but it's obviously, you know, First Nations people have been crying out and, te- you know, telling us to listen. And we hear this now in the, the First Nations people of West Papua as well, telling us the same story. They are being militarised, their borders, their lands, they're being driven out. And this is exactly what happened here in the 1800s um, through to the 1930s, where um, this land was militarised inch by inch by inch uh, with the police and the military joining together to move shift, terrorise, incarcerate, um, all those things that go with colonial violence. And this militarisation is going to be driving that on one hand, and on the other hand, it's an immense waste of resources. Um, you know, this, the, the numbers... I mean, Tala's just made 200 extra Bushmasters for no reason because it was good for the uh, Bendigo election, the electorate, um, to not pull out the 200, and they just made 200 extras no reason. Oh, we have to leave it there, Margaret. Thanks for talking to us. Oh, no worries, Annie. More strength to your arm. Yeah, well, join us in Wage Peace. Uh, we will be doing actions there in uh, down there sometime, so keep an eye out. Join us online, wagepeaceau.org. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion East or West when you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a lover, I could hold my head back. Really loud, really loud. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when Big Supremo scuttled them more last son, a.k.a. Scummo, announced our plan, 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 doing whatever it's supposed to do the Australian way, the true blue Aussie way, true blue Aussie way, true blue Aussie way, true blue Aussie way, but which sounded a hell of a lot like the true blue Aussie way we've been doing nothing about the same thing for years. Still, it seems we can now reach zero emissions in a mere 29 years, remarkably without reducing our reliance on beautiful, nothing-to-be-afraid-of coal and gas and oil, thanks to technology, not taxes. Technology, not taxes. Allowing Troubadawasi to meet and beat our commitments in a canter. Meet and beat our commitments in a canter. And don't forget, the Minister for Fossils, Oh, and emissions reduction, Angus Tailings reminded us, we also met our Kyoto commitment. Wish someone would remind him of the emissions reductions bit of his portfolio. Uh, but, but Angus, our Kyoto commitment was to increase our pollution. We were the only country which committed to increase our emissions. And we met that commitment in a canter. 
and we did it the True Blue Aussie way, which the True Blue Aussie way is certainly unique, relying on the legenda man of creating something from nothing. Unless, of course, the government believes the planet won't survive until 2050 and therefore there's no need to do anything anyway. Business as usual, to paraphrase Tom Lehrer, we'll all go together when we go. And anyway, we've already done heaps. Huge successes, Scummo and Angus boasted, citing the high uptake of rooftop solar as proof of their policies on renewable energy, which we'll only accept if we concede they can boast of their credentials when their contribution was a not all that encouraging zero, well, zero minus, or in this Melbourne Cup week, sub-zero. Speaking of sub-zero or zero minus, the plan, plan, plan was handed to scuttle them by Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle, who replaced the other bloke largely because the other bloke might be soft on opposing the zero emissions target. So that's worked a treat. As poor Barnacle said, he opposed the plan, plan, plan he had just handed scuttle them, but didn't think this meant his re-accession had failed, but showed he was a true believer in party democracy, especially the bit where they re-elected him with all the perks that go with it, confirming that commitment by declaring he would respect the vote of the great minds in the party room, which delivered him all those perks. And all those costs to the public purse the hayseed and sheepshit lot extracted will probably leak into the political environment over time like a paddock full of, say, burping cows, and not risk losing another election on climate change. We've got to admire their courage, haven't we? Their socialist convictions. Well, they're certainly racking up plenty of convictions. In a flip of the coin, the economy wrecking, as the Troubadoisie Business Profits Council put it, policy the Socialist Party took to the last election is now the Business Profits Council's policy, but no longer the Socialist Party's policy as it reeled from the caring business class that it was uncosted and therefore would further wreck the economy. Uh, yes, we ask out of them, what are the costs of your new road to Damascus plan, plan, plan? It will be costed the true Blue Aussie way, and we will provide that information at the appropriate time, um, which is after the election bit of reassurance for Scuttle them as he scuttles off to Glasgow, adding a bit more aviation fuel to the cause, if he feels a bit isolated by ignorant leaders who get the silly impression he may not be taking climate change abatement all that seriously, our advice, Scuttle them is cosy up to whoever's representing Saudi Arabia, because good news, you'll have a lot in common. Trublowazi Capitalist Review headline this week, Saudis signed to net zero while lifting output. See, they could be the closest of mates. With three Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commissions verifying what we all knew, that the crook casino is as crook as crook can be, our local commissioner saying after all the evidence as he retired to make his final recommendations, they are so crook they couldn't possibly retain their license to run their private state-endorsed mint, then naturally he found what we all knew he would find, that they could retain their license to a private mint. It reminds me of a cartoon in an English financial paper as governments were bailing out the banks during the global financial crisis. Response from little girl at the dinner table as her parents asked, What do you want to be when you grow up, dear? I want to be too big to fail. 
don't we have to admire these displays of government and judicial courage of their convictions? And again, speaking of convictions, unless I miss something, not one recommendation that anyone be charged over all the criminality, the theft, the exploitation, crime upon crime upon crime, but no criminal. Except the end result, absolutely criminal. No, no, that's not the end result. Crookshare is shot up immediately. That's all that matters. I'm sure, listener, well, hands up anyone who seriously thought they would take the licence away. Yes, I'm sure we all hoped beyond hope, but knew it was wishful thinking, and they wouldn't have the guts. And there's all that lovely money, billions of that as well. In the deja vu department, from respectable pillars of society like, and such likeable human beings as, Jamie Puker and his crook casino, Jamie and co, who will never stand in nor deserve to stand in the dock, to the real criminals in this society who must be convicted. Yes, sadly have to say it, evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers. It is criminal, criminal what the maritime workers are doing to poor, pat pricks, intent on imposing crippling work practices on their caring employer like wages and conditions, forcing poor pat pricks to say enough is enough, end negotiations which, and this will make you laugh, listener, which the evil union claims pat pricks hasn't been taking seriously, <laughs> when we all know caring employers always take negotiations seriously, making sure they drag on and on and on. So poor pat pricks has been forced to apply to have its union agreement terminated and workers reduced to the most basic wages and conditions as industrial action threatens all our Christmases uncaring, uncaring evil unions with other caring employers urging the governments, federal and state to intervene to force the lazy avaricious workers to make sure we have a Christmas because they know, well, we all know that the threat to Christmas and to goods on the shelves retail therapy, the real meaning of life is 100% down to the lazy, avaricious workers egged on by their evil union and the caring employer is 100% innocent, doing nothing more than what caring employers do. Deja vu. Pat Pricks attempted to reform the waterfront back then with a few trained killer scabs, or sorry, sorry, that's an illegal word, workers who just want to do an unfair day's work for an unfair day's pay, trained in Dubai, aided and abetted by the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in those dark ages, and the Minister for Caring Employers, Peter Root, the workers. Pat Pricks led by the highly responsible man who just wanted to make the workers a bit more productive, well, world's best practice, Chris Lye again. And some years later, Chris re-entered the industry as Supremo of Cube, and then Cube and Pat Pricks became one, and the circle keeps circling. Deja vu. And yet again, all poor Pat Pricks wants to do is modernise the waterfront. World's best practice wasn't enough. And for its gallant efforts, what thanks? The unmodernised workers want to destroy our lives. Now, long delays in the supply chain seem to be happening across the globe, but no, no, in this case, it's all down to the evil unions, poor, innocent, pat pricks. 
Finally, back when we started, Scummo assured us in a so-called think piece in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, he has a credible plan, plan, plan to get the job done. And true blue was he can always trust the caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit parties to have the right economic plan to enable true blue was he to deal with the challenge of climate change. And he didn't even add, if there is such a thing. But he didn't need to tell us we can trust them, and we know we can. And important that it must be seen as the right economic plan and not some long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron left environmental plan. Good morning. Hi, this is Mitchell from Cut Copy, and you're listening to 3CR. Please support community radio. Subscribe now. And you're back with Annie on uh, Solidarity Breakfast and we're coming to the last part of the program. And as I promised, uh, we're going to highlight the Murdoch Royal Commission uh, launch. Uh, they, it was uh, That's the hashtag, hashtag Murdoch Royal Commission. They launched on Thursday and uh, I've put a piece together from that particular launch. Uh, the CEO, there is a CEO to this campaign, Sally Rugg, and uh, she opens up the proceedings, and uh, I uh, put in um, Kevin Rudd because uh, Kevin Rudd's one of the major uh, instigators of this campaign against uh, uh, lack of diversity in uh, the uh, Australian media landscape and the uh, particular uh, over-representation of Murdoch uh, with, uh, for example, 100% ownership of uh, newspapers of Murdoch uh, uh, in Queensland and uh, ongoing incursions into the digital world with uh, Sky News uh, YouTube channels. So uh, I put this piece together. They're hoping that uh, you might join uh, their uh, big fight or our big fight because that's what it is. Uh, 3CR is uh, a representation of the diversity that should be out there. And uh, these people are relatively mainstream, I have to say, because there there was uh, uh, Rudd was there. But, of course, uh, right at the tail end, um, Malcolm, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, popped up on his iPhone. He was in, this is a piece of news, real hard facts. He's in London on his way to Glasgow to COP26, which is an interesting uh, uh, piece of information, isn't it? Uh, it uh, probably what goes on in uh, in uh, front of the cameras is much less interesting than uh, what goes on behind the scenes at a, a blah, blah, blah event like COP26. So anyway, here we go. Murdoch... Hashtag Murdoch Royal Commission. I know what News Corp does to people who challenge them. I know the devastation that News Corp brings upon the women, and they're nearly all women, who Murdoch's loyalists decide to target. I've seen my friends' lives destroyed by News Corp over a tweet, some words at a rally for playing sport, for doing their jobs. I know deeply the mendacious bullying of Murdoch's tabloids of LGBTIQ people, like it's some sort of game or hunt. But fearing Murdoch and his loyalists is exactly how he's concentrated this much power in his hands. 
Journalists are scared to speak out about the impacts of Murdoch's monopoly on the media for fear they'll lose their livelihoods. Politicians are afraid to call Murdoch into line because over the decades they've been taught that if they challenge him and News Corp, they'll pay the price. It can't go on any longer. And so, working together, Australians for a Murdoch Royal Commission will take on Murdoch's media monopoly and push for a Royal Commission into media diversity. Without further ado, um, I would like to introduce um, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who is going to tell you a little bit more about um, how public pressure can uh, change the minds of politicians and about why this organisation and this campaign is so important. Kevin. Uh, let me speak um, uh, to the subject that you just raised, uh, which is um, uh, how the uh, Murdoch factor has swept across our country over so many decades now. And on top of that, why we should not feel powerless in what can now be done about it. So in the next four or five minutes, I just want to talk about the power of one man, that's Murdoch. I want to talk about the fear that he induces, something Sally's already referred to. And then thirdly, a call to courage, which is what we can do about it in a practical sense to bring about a genuinely diverse Australian media environment. On the first one, the power of one man. Here's my very simple argument. No individual should have as much power in the Australian democracy as Murdoch, Rupert or Lachlan now has. No one. That's why, as a nation, we have for generations had deep reservations about any form of monopoly, let alone one in the news media. The figures are clear. 70% of the print readership, print readership owned by Murdoch, 100% in Queensland, 100% in South Australia. On top of that, through Sky Television, Australia's only 24-hour-a-day uh, commercial uh, news service. On top of that, Sky through YouTube, now the biggest uh, YouTube channel carrying news in Australia currently twice the size of the ABC and bigger than the other commercial networks by a country mile. And beyond that, again, other platforms of power and influence, Australia's largest, for example, real estate advertising company, realestate.com.au, again, owned by Rupert Murdoch. The concentration of these powers uh, is enormous. The abuse of this monopoly of power over such a long period of time has been gross. Let me just give you one example. In the last decade, the last 20 federal and state elections, in all 20 of those elections, the Murdoch media monopoly has campaigned viciously in support of one political party, it's the Liberal National Party, and viciously against their opponents, the Australian Labor Party. You've virtually got a coalition arrangement between the Murdoch Party and uh, the Liberal National Party, and that is cancerous for our democracy. That's why, in my judgment, Murdoch is a cancer in our democracy. 
That's my first point. Too much power in the hands of a single individual, let alone someone as ideologically far-right as Murdoch, a person who almost single-handedly enabled Trump to come to power in the United States. Second is fear. Somebody's spoken about this. It's just wrong that we have so many Australians so fearful of taking on the Murdoch beast. But you know something? Fear can be a rational response because they've seen so much evidence of what Murdoch does to shred people's reputations who dare stand up against him. It's not just the likes of myself or Malcolm Turnbull and others. Uh, frankly, it's, it's Australians from all walks of life, such as the testimonies we have heard from people in this uh, launch event this evening. It's just wrong that people should feel so frightened of Murdoch, fearing the use and abuse of his monopoly against individuals who have a different point of view. I run into so many Australians in politics on both sides of the political divide, in business leadership who run corporations, uh, leaders of community organisations and charities, average citizens who will give you chapter and verse on how Murdoch has misreported and refuse to apologise for what they have printed. But those individuals are too fearful about taking him on direct because they fear the consequences. And that fear is, again, a cancer in our democracy. Which brings me, Sally, to the third and last point I wanted to emphasise at this launch. What can we do about it? Well, you know, Australians for a Murdoch Royal Commission AFMRC, I want to become a phrase around the country that we use each day, hashtag Murdoch Royal Commission, so that it is heard right across every town and community, every suburb, every city, every community organisation, as we as the people of this country fight back against this one man who induces such fear. Guess what? Murdoch does not own this country, even though he thinks he does. The Australian people own this country, and we express our views through the ballot box, and we form, through our vote, the government of this country. So whether it's through the ballot box and what we do at the next federal election, or whether it's through direct forms of community action, Sally, uh, like, for example, your support as the people participating in this launch tonight for the murdochroyalcommission.org.au, go to the website. If you cannot afford to donate, then we would appreciate your donation to build up our research team over time, then at least join our mailing list so that your voice can be added to ours through a social media network to get the message out about the need to end this monopoly. Share our content through your social media platform and through your voice. Spread the word to your family and your friends. There's another thing you can do as well, which is join AFMRC, the Murdoch Royal Commission.org, in taking complaints directly to media, uh, to Murdoch himself, and failing that to the Australian Press Council or to the Australian uh, uh, Media and Broadcasting Authority, ACMA. I've done this myself. Murdoch hates it, particularly when you actually prevail, even though these still are fairly toothless tigers. 
I remember, for example, taking recently the Murdoch media to the press council on the question of a cartoon run which was deeply racist uh, about the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, where the cartoonist happily referred to the vice president of the United States or as the candidate for that position as that little brown girl. We won in that. They had to apologise. And then they attacked the regulator and attacked me for raising the complaint in the first place. But the point is, if we in our thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands add our voice to this, guess what? And complaints are made to ACMA and to the press council, it all adds up. Call out Murdoch's bias when you see it on a daily basis. Use your own media platforms, social media platforms to do that. And please attend our own online events. And finally, the thing we can do together is to place pressure on the entire Australian political establishment to bring about through legislation this Murdoch Royal Commission, a Royal Commission into the future of media diversity, which looks at all media platforms, including the future of the Australian public broadcaster as well. To conclude, from little things, big things grow. We don't need to have an Australia where one man has so much power. We don't need to live in fear of how that power can be used against individuals, innocent individuals. And guess what? Through acting together and finding our common Australian voice, we can actually change the nation. When I put up a petition just 12 months ago calling for a Murdoch Royal Commission, I didn't know whether we'd get 500 signatures or 5,000 or maybe even 50,000. We ended up getting half a million plus, and that's after we crashed the entire site of the Australian Parliament. Australians are angry and fed up, Sally, about what this guy is doing to our country, and it doesn't need to be that way. So add your voice through signing up with Australians from Murdoch Royal Commission, through donating if you can, through on top of that, adding your voice and sharing our content on examples of bias, and then throwing your enormous collective weight through your local members of parliament in support of the establishment of Murdoch Royal Commission so that we get a change to our laws to enshrine better media diversity in the future. Back to you, Sally. Thank you so much, Kevin. Um... And I also just want to take the opportunity to thank the team at Victorian Trades Hall Council who have um, provided tremendous support in the last couple of weeks um, to help Australians from Murdoch Royal Commission get to this point um, and to launch tonight. So thank you, team. Um, right, now I'm going to take you through our strategy presentation. Let me bring up these slides. I hope everybody can see them okay. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through our strategy and we're going to go through it backwards. Now, a lot of, uh, a lot of campaigns uh, prefer not to share this sort of strategic information, um, you know, thinking that it's not wise to put your cards on the table or um, perhaps sometimes believing that people don't want to know how the sausage is made. I think that people do want to know how the sausage is made. And I also hope that each of you um, will like this strategy, will want to power this strategy. And if you have feedback on it, will let us know what your feedback is on this strategy. 
it's only going to work if we all do it together. And so I'm going to lay it out uh, here tonight. So starting from the beginning, our goal, our ultimate goal of Australians from Murdoch Royal Commission is we want to see a strong and independent media made up of fearless journalists, political independents and diverse publications who can investigate and report the truth without editorial influence, contending with government secrecy or fear of public prosecution. Now, we believe that a royal commission and only a royal commission will have the authority, the resources and the independence to properly investigate the impacts of media monopolies on our communities, on the media and on our democracy. Before we finish this, uh, this campaign launch, we have one more story to share with you. Um, this person shared their story anonymously um, because like so many uh, people in our community who feel the impact of Murdoch's media monopoly, this is really close to home and it impacts his family. Um, so he's spoken anonymously because he wants his privacy, but also because it takes a lot of courage to, um, to speak up against the Murdoch media. For as long as I can remember, Mum's media diet has left a lot to be desired. As a teen, I was woken on weekdays by the sound of Alan Jones coming from her bedroom. She's always insisted she doesn't agree with everything he says, and she'll criticise him way after the fact for going too far, but even then, his opinions managed to become hers time and time again. Alan Jones's move to Sky News changed something. At first, Mum was eager to add a second screen to my Foxtel package so she could stream Alan and his Sky News friends from her phone. Sky News hosts pushed YouTube streams and promoted the right-wing social media platform Parler. And almost overnight, Mum was swallowed by the alt-right media ecosystem. We rightly criticise the Murdoch media in Australia for the content they produce, but we rarely talk about how Sky News acts to steer people onto YouTube and towards the fringes. Mum's technical literacy is near zero, and if the YouTube algorithm serves her up a video after an Alan Jones Sky News clip, she doesn't understand that she is being nudged towards more inflammatory content to keep her engaged on the platform. If this were just quote-unquote entertainment, I suppose it would be harmless, but it has radically changed something in her. For weeks, at the end of 2020, she would steer every conversation back to the stolen election. She insisted on only buying pillows from alt-right media personality Mike Lindell, despite ridiculous postage fees and negative customer reviews. The woman who, when her nieces and nephews visited from Greece, would drag them to the local GP pretending to be their mother to get them vaccinated, became somebody who doubted COVID, social distancing and vaccines. She cried when I got mine, even as she told me she was pro-vaccine. She cried as she said it was experimental. We didn't know what was in them. It was like watching two halves of her in conflict. One that believed the media she consumed hours of each day, and the other her true self. But mention this to her, and she's defensive. Quick to vibrate with rage to defend her media consumption of all things. In a word, it's terrifying. Health issues and the isolation of the pandemic has meant that it's a perfect storm for her indoctrination. Talking about anybody, from a Sky News after dark personality to a pillow salesman, 
validates the talking points that everyone is conspiring against the right. I'm taking the advice from experts, avoiding confrontation, and instead focusing on talking to her about family and memories. And when I do, she's herself. We laugh at QAnon like it's a concern for the US, but as Sky News extends its reach to free to air and pushes people with very passive media consumption habits and low media and technical literacy to YouTube, and then onto Newsmax, it, or something like it, will be our problem soon enough. And uh, that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We uh, went and covered eco-socialism. The... uh, the question that was being asked was uh, the one that's been a mantra at uh, the uh, School for Strikes for Climate, uh, not climate change, system change. Uh, we followed that up with militarism and, uh, interestingly enough, how uh, hand-in-glove uh, climate change capitalism and militarism actually is. Uh, and we followed that with uh, the uh, Murdoch uh uh, Royal Commission campaign, and uh, we're going to go out with uh, little things from little things, big things grow because it's hard to resist. Coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific currents. Keep safe. Talk to you next week. You gather round, people. I tell you a story. An eight-year-long story of power and pride British Lord Vesey and Vincent Lingyari Were opposite men on opposite sides Vesey was fat, money and muscle Beef was his business, broad was his door Vincent was lean, spoke very little he had no bank balance, our dirt was his floor. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. The Ringy were working for nothing but rations, but once they had gathered the wealth of the land. Daily the pressure got tighter and tighter Gurindji decided they must make a stand They picked up their swags, started off walking At Waddy Creek, they sat themselves down Now it don't sound like much, but it sure got tongues talking Back at the homestead, then in the town From Things, big things grow from little things, big things grow. Investing man said, I'll double your wages, seven quid a week you have in your hand. Vincent said, Uh uh-uh, uh, we're not talking about wages, we're staying right here. We get our lane. Festy man rode, festy man thundered. He 
don't stand a chance of a cinder in snow. Vince said if we fall, others arising from new things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Vincent Lignari, he boarded an airplane, landed in Sydney, big city of lights, and daily he went round softly speaking his story to all kinds of men from all walks of life. Vincent sat down with them big politicians. This affair, they told him, it's a matter of state. Let us sort it out. While your people are hungry, Vincent said, no thanks. We know how to wait. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. If you're in it, this is all about reconciliation. So get at it. We want to hear you. Vincent Lignari returned in an airplane back to his country once more to sit down. And he told his people, let the stars keep on turning. We got friends in the south, in the cities and towns. Eight years went by, eight long years of waiting to one day a tall stranger appeared in the land. And he came with lawyers, came with great ceremony, threw Vincent's fingers on that handful of sand. Go! From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Vincent Lignari, but this is a story, something so much more. How power and privilege cannot move a people who know where they stand when they stand in their You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.